turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 tonight. And Father, as we open up these Bibles, at the same time, our hearts, our very lives are open to you. What is it you want to show us? What is it you want to do in us? What things will you perhaps remind us of that we already know, but we need a fresh reminder that you might do a fresh work? Some of us, Lord, are just spiritually tired and need that refreshment, a new touch. We pray that you would do that. Thank you for the the encouraging testimonies that we have heard so far. And each of us has a story. We're all waiting on you for something. Our expectation is from you. And now, Lord, as we study your word in Nehemiah, Father, we pray that you might speak in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1974, one of the most famous scandals in American history took place in Washington, D.C. at the DNC, the Democratic National Headquarters, at the Watergate Hotel. That's the Watergate scandal where the Nixon administration came in and wiretapped the the room, became known as Watergate. I'm going to take you back to the original Watergate of the 5th century B.C., And what I mean by the original Watergate is there is a revival that takes place at the Water Gate in Jerusalem. The gate which is on that part of Jerusalem facing the Gihon Spring, the water source. You've already read about it. They called it the Water Gate. And it's not a scandal. Rather, it is a revival at the Water Gate. And uh, it centers around the people of God and the Bible. They don't have Bibles like we have. They don't have books with leather and little margins and ribbons in them, but they had the scroll of the law. And so this chapter I'm calling The People, the Bible, and the Watergate Revival. That's the theme of chapter 8 of Nehemiah. It's only 18 verses long. We're going to read it tonight. Some of you have been with us to Israel, and some of you have been to Israel before we had our tours, which just started this last year. I've been a bunch of times, and Israel is called the land of the book for obvious reasons. Because everywhere you go in Israel, it has some interwoven story that you find in the Bible. Every corner you turn, you look at something and go, I remember that. I know where that is or what that's all about. I read that in the Bible. And it comes to life. It's called the land of the book. The land of the Bible. It was said, Victor Hugo, the French essayist, over a century ago said that England is a country of two books, the Bible and Shakespeare. He said England made Shakespeare, but the Bible made England. What a great thought. That there was a country in more modern times that was crafted by the Bible. And it was so. When a tribal chieftain from Africa asked Queen Elizabeth in her era, he had gone to English schools to be educated. He said, your majesty, what makes England so great? And what is the account? What is that? 
this room has got to be possessed with something. Um, he said, what is the secret to the prosperity of England? And she held up a Bible. She said, take this book back to your tribe, to your people, and teach them the truths and have them obey it. And your tribe, your country will be as prosperous. Well, that ideology first came over when the pilgrims settled this country. Daniel Webster said they brought the book with them, meaning the Bible. However, today we have the Bible, but we're certainly not a people of the book, are we? In fact, we are biblically illiterate in this country, more so than ever before. You know that at one time this book was the textbook in American schools. You couldn't go to a public school at one time in this country without reading the Bible. Now there's controversy. Can you even pray in a public school? Of course, somebody once said, as long as there are finals to take, there will always be prayers in public school. In Nehemiah chapter 8, remember from the previous studies, the walls have been built. It's done. The breaches are fixed. The leadership has been appointed. The population has been assembled. Everything's in a row. People are even giving, as we saw in chapter 7, generously to the work, whatever might be needed for the priesthood and worship. But that's not enough. These people, secure behind the walls, need something spiritual to encourage them, to anchor them. So many of these people in Jerusalem had never heard the Bible preached before, had never heard a scribe or a prophet. They came back from the captivity. They spent their time building these walls, and it was all about the walls, the building. And now it's time for something spiritual, and it brings a revival, as we're about to read. There was a spiritual vacuum that existed. The ignorance, the biblical ignorance of the people in Jerusalem was appalling. Now, just think about your own country, the United States of America. If you were to give sort of a uh, report card to our country, if you were to look at our nation and um, give a state of the union or state of the church or state of spirituality in our country, what would you say it is? In regards to the Bible, how many people really, how many Christians really read the Bible? In many places... Uh, the Bible is something that's put on a coffee table or in a drawer or it's reserved for a courtroom where you put your hand on it and you swear to tell the truth. The National uh, Review, there's an article by Richard Lederer, sort of a famous article, and what he did is compile the findings of college students who took a test based on what their knowledge of the Bible was, and he put it together, and here's a compilation. Bible stories told by college students. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. Samson slayed the Philistine with the axe of the apostles. And the seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. Moses died before he ever reached Canada, instead of Canaan. Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Geritol. 
rather than Jericho. The greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. (laughs) And Solomon, one of David's sons, has 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Somebody once said that if, if every Bible, if everybody opened their Bible at one time in this country, you'd have the greatest dust storm in history. We don't actually read it. So what we want you to look at tonight is three things. The rally, the reading, and the revival. Make it simple. Three R's. They rally together. The people rally. They gather together, it says, as one man, as one person. They read the Bible. It is read to them. And a revival occurs in this country, something new and fresh. Verse 1. Now, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. The seventh month is the month of Tishri. It is our September, middle of September to about the middle of October. It's a huge month in the Jewish calendar. It's sort of the month of festivals. The Feast of Trumpets is celebrated during the seventh month. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles is celebrated during the seventh month. The High Holy Day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is also celebrated on the seventh month. Well, it says it's the first day of the seventh month. That's a highlight. That's New Year in the Jewish calendar. That's Rosh Hashanah. And Ezra the scribe, we read about him in the book of Ezra. We haven't read about him much here. Ezra the scribe had come back to offer spiritual help to these people while they were rebuilding the city. Here, he brings out the scroll. It wasn't a book like this. It wasn't bound like this. It was presumably the Pentateuch, the Torah scroll. If you've ever been to a synagogue and you see the rabbi open the ark up front and take out the scroll, that's more or less what this scribe Ezra did. He took it out. And he unrolled it. And notice who's in his audience. It says, um, it was the assembly of men, verse 2, and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. So any child that had the ability, and you'll see how long of a service this was, to discern and understand like an adult would, whatever age that is, and it differs from child to child. But here's the point. The whole family is involved, and they're all going to be involved in the hearing and the reading of the Bible. You know... It was refreshing that they didn't say, Nehemiah, we want to know what kind of a service you're going to have. What is Ezra going to preach on? How long is it going to be? I hope there's something for my kids. I hope you have good air conditioning and good this and good that. All of that was aside. It was all centered on the word of God. They loved the word of God. And the people initiated it. They're the ones that asked for it. Bring the book. I am concerned about the church today in our country. As a pastor, as a churchman, 
I suppose you could say maybe that's part of my job description, but I have a real honest concern about the church. Because I've noticed that for some folks, church means something different than it does to other folks. We all have different ideas of the church. And some of them aren't even good ideas. The focus is on the building. And in some places, if you have a building, you have a building fund, and you raise the money, you put a building, you stick a cross on it, you can have anything goes in that building, any kind of social club, any kind of any gathering, that's good enough, that's a church. It's not centered on the hearing of the Word of God. Hence, we produce generations of biblically illiterate and, frankly, apathetic believers. Uh, This group is stirred, and they'll be stirred even more as the Bible is read. It was Bill Bennett who years ago said that America is dumbing down. We're uh, educating people less. We're lowering the bar rather than raising the bar. We're making it a lot easier for kids to pass through school than they used to. We're dumbing down as a nation. And I've got to say that taking off of what Bill Bennett says, in the church, we're also dumbing down. We're also giving people less and less Bible. Gallup organization, in looking at our country, said four out of ten Americans, only four out of ten, know that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Six out of ten, 60% of Americans don't know that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Three out of ten teenagers know why Easter is celebrated, which is seven out of ten don't know the true meaning of Easter. And most people in our country can't name the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They, some still think it's John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Now, I've heard and I've talked to people about church for years. I've pastored for 20-some years now. And I hear things like this. Well, um, I don't like to talk much about doctrine. Doctrine really isn't all that important. In fact, to a lot of people, how you feel is more important than what you know. It's not important what you know. What really is important is how you feel and how you, pastor, make me feel when I come to hear you. That's what it's all about. Well, the Bible doesn't commend that. The prophet Hosea, speaking for the Lord, says, My people perish for lack of feeling. No, for lack of knowledge. Four times it's recorded in the gospel. Jesus rebuked the leaders saying, Have you not read Don't you know what the book says? In Acts chapter 2, you know what we read several months ago. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking bread and prayers. Paul writes to young Timothy and he says, Till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. To Titus, Paul says, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. So here you have, and let's compare it, the children of Israel, they just got back from captivity. They're all excited. They built the wall. Nehemiah and Ezra know there's a spiritual ignorance that has to be corrected here. But they wait for the people to ask, give us the word. Give us the word. So the preaching begins. Compare that with our country today. 
Listen to what one pastor slash theologian wrote. His name is James Montgomery Boyce. He's an author that I've loved to read. He says, we do not have a strong church today, nor do we have many strong Christians. We can trace the cause to an acute lack of sound spiritual knowledge. Ask the average Christian to talk about God. And after getting past the expected answers, you will find that his God is a little God of vacillating sentiments. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to spiritual things. My people perish for lack of knowledge. Paul said twice, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about two issues. Interesting what those issues are. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, about the coming of the Lord. And another time, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. What are the two areas of ignorance most in the church today? The second coming of Christ and spiritual gifts in the church. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, but how many of us are? Well, let's go from that to the reading of the word. Verse 3. Let's see what happens. Then he, Ezra, read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. Now, keep in mind, men, women, and children of the understanding age, from morning until midday, Before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for that purpose. Beside him at his right hand side stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, and a whole bunch of other ayahs that you can see in that verse that I'm not going to read. Have fun with it. And Ezra opened, verse 5, the book in the sight of all of the people, for he was standing above all of the people. And when he opened the book, all the people stood up. So you can get sort of a a picture almost of a modern-day church. They built a platform, a stage, so that he was visible. And the word of God was put on a pulpit of wood. And he got up, and he unrolled the scroll. And when he did, the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the great God. And all the people answered, Amen! Amen! That's where the Amen corner started. While lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, and all these other people that were skipping over. And the Levites, same verse, helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense or they explained the meaning and helped them to understand the reading. So here's the picture, I believe. Ezra would read a portion. And after he got weary, he sort of got wound down after a period of time, he'd step aside. And there's 13 others that are mentioned who would help take up the slack and. Read the word, read the law, Genesis, and then Exodus, and there was Leviticus. Reading through the Pentateuch, the Torah, reading it and giving the sense of it. Notice how long the service was. It says from morning until midday. Literally, it's from the light till midday. That's sunrise to about noon, six hours. It's a long service. And it it always struck me that as long as this Bible study was, and it's in the Old Testament... And it's in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Look at what it says. The people were attentive. 
Wow, for six hours. Here's why. Many of them had not heard this kind of teaching, this kind of exposition for many, many years. Most of them probably never heard it before. This blew them away. They knew their nation was founded on this stuff, but nobody had ever stood in front of them and read it and explained it to them. There's a great proverb. It's worth remembering. Proverbs 27. It says, to the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. And to people who are hungry for the Bible and spiritual truth, you don't have to be a great expositor. They'll lap it up. You could be the most boring and unknowledgeable, and people will lap it up. Seriously, if all of us decided, let's get on an airplane and go to a third world country, and you're giving the Bible study next Sunday morning, and you say, I can't do it, you could. And the people would love it. They would love it because you, as an American Christian, know way more than they do. Even many of the clergy. So here we are sort of at a deficit in our country. There's churches on every corner and there are great churches and they got radio programs and we kind of sit back and grade their sermons on a scale of one to ten. It's about a six or today is not as good, maybe four. But in so many of these countries who've never heard it, it's like, wow. And I've traveled to countries that um, for, um, oh, I can't do that. I don't have this on anymore. I get carried away. Um, They get so excited, whether it's Thailand or Africa, and I think I've told you before when I've gone to India, and they say they walk for hours to get to church. And I'm used to giving a message and um, on a Sunday morning here, about 40 minutes on a midweek, maybe 50 minutes, uh, Costa Mesa on Sunday night, maybe an hour and 10 minutes. I'll go about an hour and a half thinking they're tired, and I'm ready to go, and it's like, oh, no, you're not quitting. (laughs) We're just getting started. And they want you to go for a few hours. They'll work you. And then they'll bring you back at night and have you do the same thing. (laughs) To the hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. And to these people, they were attentive for six hours. As a pastor, as a pastor teacher, my big concern is that you are well-fed sheep. And let me explain what I mean by that. I, I just want... Everybody to have a working knowledge of the will of God through the word of God. I know that we're not going to all be theologians or really like to read theology stuff, but I want you to know enough of the Bible so that you know where to go when you need stuff and that you're well equipped. Back in um, 1636, which is 16 years after America was founded by the Pilgrim Fathers, Houses were built, churches were built. They decided, let's build schools. So they built one school, the first school, after uh, one of their notable men, John Harvard. It became Harvard University. Now listen to the reason why they built Harvard University after this young preacher, John Harvard. They said, we are dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present minister shall lie in the dust. That's why Harvard was founded. Let's teach preachers to preach the gospel. Let's make them literate and effective preachers of the gospel. They wanted to evangelize the eastern seaboard. Go to Harvard University today and see if that sentiment is still intact. It's not. It's hard-pressed to find an on-fire evangelical on the campus. 
in such a liberal bastion of academia. There was a farmer who resisted the high price of oats for his mules, didn't want to pay the money, so he thought, I can take the oats and mix some sawdust in it. It'll be good filler, and he'll be fine. And he was for a while. And the only problem is that by the time the mules were satisfied, they were dead because he gradually substituted enough sawdust for the oats. They didn't get any nourishment. It was just filler. And the oats, the uh, donkeys did feel satisfied, but they had no nourishment, so they died. That is what I believe is happening en masse around our country. And the people love to have it. The prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 5, the Lord says this to and through this prophet. An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it. You know what? I've discovered that there is more and more a resistance to sound doctrine, a resistance to the word of God. In the average church, listen, in the average church, if you cut down the sermon and added more music, people would, could care less. Great, we love it. It's about time. If you cut out Bible study and had more words of knowledge and words of prophecy, people could care less. They would love to have it that way. You take music away or you take drama away and you fill it in with Bible study. Oh, now wait a minute. We're not enduring sound doctrine. Reminds me of my son years ago. We had his graduation yesterday. He graduated from high school. We were proud of him and had a great time last evening. But all sorts of thoughts went through my mind as I watched him go get his diploma and sitting there with his classmates. And little cameos, little events of Nathan's life came into my mind. One was a dinner that we had because we all went out to eat last night afterwards. But a dinner that we had where Nathan refused to eat asparagus. He wasn't going to finish his meal. Now, the deal was, is that we have muffins that Lenya made. After you eat the asparagus, go for the muffins. Well, he was having a hard time, and the only motivation to finish the asparagus was to have the muffins. But if he had a choice, asparagus or muffins, which would he go for? Muffins, hand down. Who wants the asparagus? Today, many Christians will not endure sound asparagus or sound broccoli or cauliflower or zucchini. Oh, no, give me the muffins and the jam and all of that stuff. But, but as a pastor, along with my concern, the reason I plow verse by verse like we do, chapter by chapter like we do, is to give you the counsel of the knowledge of God, a well-rounded, that's why we give you background, that's why we give you language, that's why we plow deeply and get into these verses to give you that that knowledge so that you might grow, balanced diet. And I hope that you develop an appetite for spiritual truth so that you'll settle for nothing less. You'll want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that you won't be satisfied with a late night snack on Proverbs or an early morning psalm and that's it. But that you'll like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And I'm not going to ask you to spend six hours at a sudden doing that. But uh, they did it. They hadn't heard it in a long time. Oh, by the way, it says they stood. 
Did you know that in ancient times it was customary for the teachers to sit and the congregation to stand? Now, I think we've got it messed up here, folks. I think I should be sitting on the stool. You should be standing as we read the word. We won't make you do that either. I'm going to take it out of a few verses. There was the rally. They got together. They wanted the word read. It was read in their hearing. Now, let's look at the revival. And I believe there's signs of revival that occurred here that accompany every move of God when it's a true revival. So let's look at a few of them. First of all, verse 5, there was a reverence, as we've seen, for the scripture. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all of the people stood up. To this day, in synagogues, when the rabbi opens the ark and gets the scroll, people stand. And in many churches, they'll say, let us stand for a responsive reading of the word of God. There has never been a genuine revival as I've read, as I've seen, as I've studied, without the word of God. Not a one. Ask King Josiah. Ask King Hezekiah. These guys who brought the Bible back from the dead, so to speak, and made it front and center in the nation once again, it brought revival. It was the recovery of the Bible that ushered in the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. Speaking of India, there was an Indian indigenous leader who was writing to his friend about the revival, but the way he wrote it was this. We are having a great revival. And that's actually a great, great beginning definition of a revival. A revival. We're seeing the Bible again. We're reading the Bible again. The word of God. And it was that reverence that led to their listening, which led to an understanding. Verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense or explained the meaning and helped them to understand the reading. So a public reading of the scripture followed by an explanation of the meaning of the text. And we could even infer that some of the Levites broke up into smaller groups with some of these people in the next several days and explained the meaning of the text to them and how to apply it to them personally as a nation in smaller groups. This verse, verse 8, every preacher knows is the uh, beginning verse, the highlight verse, the verse of focus, the hinge for expository preaching where a text is given and the sense is then given or the explanation. Happy are the people who sit under expository preaching. There uh, is topical preaching. There is textual preaching. But then there is expository preaching. And I'm not going to go into a whole diatribe of the difference between all of those. But the safest, the best, the hardest is expository preaching, where you uncover every word meaning and how words relate together and you give the sense and the background and the history and the customs and then how it applies to your life now. There is a big difference, folks, between preaching from the Bible and preaching the Bible. Everybody can preach from the Bible. And here's the deceptive thing. Well, they read the Bible, but sometimes the method is this. Read the text, depart from the text and never return to the text. You just sort of use it as a reference and you just sort of springboard into your own deal, your own topic, your own rabbit trails. 
There's a difference between that and actually preaching and teaching the Bible. This is what they did. They read the word. They gave the sense. Expository preaching. It's more than read and ramble. It's more than just giving a devotional talk. It's teaching and preaching the Bible and how it applies to our life. Second thing is that they worshiped God. Verse 6. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. It's the first thing they did. Lifting up of the hands isn't just something reserved for the Pentecostal movement or the kooky charismatic camp. It's reserved for believers. I will that every man, Paul said, lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. What does it signify? It signifies I give up. I surrender. I'm yours. Sometimes you hear policemen or even criminals point a gun and say, come out with your hands up. Because you can't do anything when your hands are up. You surrender. So it's a signification of I surrender to you. Yeah, but I feel so corny when I do it. I feel so weird when I do it. So you don't have to do it. It's not a mandate. But you can. You could actually decide, I'm going to get free of that. I'm going to quit worrying about what other people think or how I feel right now. And I'm just going to do it as unto the Lord. I surrender to you, Lord. I give up. I'm yours totally. The second thing they did is they bowed down. Look at the same verse. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Now, bowing is a sign of submission. When you'd greet royalty in those days, you would always bow. You couldn't say, I don't feel like bowing. They cut your head off. (laughs) So you bow because it's royalty. And about a hundred times in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word shacha is used for worship, which literally means I fall face down. I am not only submitting or surrendering, but submitting to the Lord in the bowing down of my body. I just want to say a couple things before we move on. Worship is a matter of the heart. You can truly worship the Lord just sitting in an upright position. You you don't have to do anything else, just in your heart. The attitude can be right. And we rightly emphasize the position of the heart over the position of the body. However, having said that, The Bible does talk about using the body in worship. The raising of the hands, the bowing of the body, standing before the Lord, kneeling before the Lord. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I just want to say this. I don't think God is necessarily crazy about secret admirers. I know my wife isn't. I know if I came home and she said, you know, honey, it's been 10 years since you said I love you. And imagine how it would be if I said to her, well, do I really have to? I mean, in my heart, I love you. And I did tell you when we were married 24 years ago that I loved you. I'm a man of my word. I said it once. That's all I ever have to say. I'm a man of my word. Just believe it. It wouldn't be a good relationship. Love is something that is demonstrated. 
I love to demonstrate things to my wife. Honey, you look great. Oh, thank you. She never says, would you quit saying that? <laughs> She's never tired of hearing. You're beautiful. I love you. Doing things for her. So I think we could learn to see worship as I'm going to demonstrate these things to the Lord. Rather than be a secret admirer. Third thing, besides reverence for scripture and worship for God, that is a sign of a revival, is remorse over sin. Remorse over sin. You can tell when God is moving, when people start looking at their own lives and thinking, I got to change. I want to grow. I don't want to stagnate. You can tell that there is revival when the word of God is preached and people don't say, that's okay of a message. I've heard better. Is he done yet? And it's, oh, that speaks to my heart. I need to change. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. The preaching of Ezra and the explanation of the text. Again, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was sufficient to strike a responsive chord in their hearts as they heard it. It touched them. It moved them for six hours as they heard it. And they stood. The Holy Spirit was at work inside their hearts. Why? Because now, for the first time, they're able to compare their conduct with the standard. To that point, there really wasn't a standard. It was just sort of whatever you feel like. Now there's a standard, and they see their lives have fallen short of the standard. And so they begin to weep, they begin to mourn, it touches them, it bothers them. It's sort of similar to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. You remember the setting. He was out there in the temple courts preaching, not far from where this took place. And it says, as he started telling them about Jesus and the fulfillment of scripture in Christ, it says, the people were cut to the heart. And they said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of the Lord for the remission of sins. The writer of Hebrews said, familiar text, the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Let me read that portion in the New Living Translation. Just a couple verses. The Word of God cuts deep into our innermost thoughts and desires and exposes us for who we really are. Now, here's a word of encouragement. When you hear a sermon or something on the radio or on television or you read a book and it starts to convict you, let it. Let it. Why? Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. He corrects every son whom he received. It is a sign that your loving father is dealing with you kindly so that you would grow. Let it happen. Let it penetrate. 
we have a uh, temptation to deflect. We are good at hearing the truth and thinking, that didn't apply to me, and here's why. We start wrestling with it and wrangling with it and pushing it off. Or we say, I know someone who really needs to hear this. It's not me. It can't be me, but it's him. I'm going to buy him the tape. And the Holy Spirit start messing around with your heart. Let him do that. A.W. Tozer said this. Until a man has gotten into trouble with his own heart, it's not likely that he'll get out of trouble with his God. So it may hurt just a bit when the Holy Spirit starts messing with your heart. But let him mess with it. You can listen to sermons. You don't have to elbow or nudge anybody next to you. Just let the Holy Spirit do it to you. Fourth mark of this revival is joyful fellowship. Verse 10, he told them not to mourn and weep. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send the portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah and Ezra were encouraged and heartened to see such widespread conviction and sorrow over people's sin. That was a good sign. But they seek to comfort them now. And they say, look, this day is holy to the Lord our God. What day? The first day of the seventh month. The first day of Tishri, Rosh Hashanah. This is the kickoff day to the festival month. This is the month we celebrate Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacles, Yom Kippur. So though it's appropriate to feel conviction over your sins, it's also appropriate to be comforted and experience joy for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Number five, finally, a real mark of revival. It's going to sound obvious when I say it, but it's necessary. Obedience. Obedience. Verse 13, now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the law. They came back the next day. Not everybody, they went home. But the heads of the fathers, the chieftains came. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So on the second day, they've now made it to about Leviticus chapter 23. That's where it starts talking about the Feast of Tabernacles and how to celebrate it in booths. And this is what God said. Build booths for yourself. Now listen to how cool this feast sounds. You build a booth, a lean-to. You get sticks, you get palm branches, and you build this makeshift little room outside on your porch, in the temple courts, wherever, and you live in it for seven days. I can see you ladies aren't really excited about that. What do you mean? No sink, no restroom? No, you don't spend all of your time there, but you spend a portion of your day in it, or you spend the night in it. So there you are for a portion of the day or the night, living outside looking up, and you can see the stars at night, so you're out in the open. Why? It was to remind them of God's providential care in the wilderness. He led them through the desert, gave them all that they needed. 
They were out under the stars in the wild, but their God gave them manna from heaven, water from the rock, quail, everything they needed. Yearly, they were to spend seven days reminding themselves that their God providentially cared for them in the wilderness. They hadn't done it. You want to know how long they hadn't done it? Let's read on. That they should announce and proclaim in all of their cities in Jerusalem, saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. That's Leviticus 23 or thereabouts. Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was a great gladness also day by day from the first day until the last day. He read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Children of Israel had not kept this feast for about a thousand years with a wholehearted devotion. Since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, throughout the monarchy with David and Solomon and the other kings, the split of the kingdom, the captivity and the return, they hadn't kept it for a thousand years. This is the first time they read it in the law and they do it. They obey it. That's a sign of revival. Sign of revival isn't, wow, I lifted my hands in worship and I bow down today and I felt really good about the service. It's, did I put into practice what God in his word showed me? Not, did I take good notes? Did I do what the notes say to do? Did I follow what the word of God says to do? It's an old saying that says, it's not how high you jump, it's how straight you walk when you hit the ground. They were moved, they were excited, they wept, they were commanded to be joyful. But the ultimate sign is that they obeyed the scripture. It was Dwight Moody who said every Bible should be bound in shoe leather. That's a way of saying that you should take what you read and walk the truths. Rather than simply memorizing them or simply rejoicing in them, but bind the Bible in shoe leather. So how do you know you've got revival in your own heart, in your own church, in your own community? It's when you start seeing changed lives, when thieves steal no more, when liars stop lying, when adulterers stop lusting and running around with somebody else's husband or wife, when they look at their own sin and they go, I hate that. I'm not going to do that. I'm sorrowful over that. I've offended a holy God. I don't want to offend a holy God. And then you put that into practice and there's joy and there's gladness and the community has changed. You know, you've got revival. And, and what is the, the hinge of all that? It truly is the reception of the word of God. It's when you hear it plainly taught and explained and put into practice. I want to close with a, a letter. Um, I didn't receive this letter. I didn't write this letter, though I have received some letters this week. 
maybe in another time I'll share with you from different people who listen around the country. But this is a letter to a British newspaper called the British Weekly from somebody anonymous. Dear Sir, I notice that ministers, pastors, seem to set a great deal of importance on their sermons and spend a great deal of time preparing them. I've been attending services quite regularly for the past 30 years. And during that time, if I estimate correctly, I have listened to no less than 3,000 sermons. But to my consternation, I discover I can't remember a single one of them. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. Sincerely. Signed anonymously. Several letters angrily were written back. I like this one. My dear sir, I have been married for 30 years. During that time, I have eaten 32,850 meals. <laughs> Mostly my wife's cooking. Suddenly... I have discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal. And yet I have received nourishment from every one of them. I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago. Sincerely. It's not, it didn't matter if you remember all the points or the poem at the end. What, what is most important is that you eat the meal and it nourishes you. And you develop a hunger and I develop a hunger and a, a response of worship and repentance as well as gladness before the Lord. That's what's important. Well, Heavenly Father, in our prayer to you this evening. As we have read about that great rally in Jerusalem where people gathered at the Watergate. Not a Watergate scandal, but a Watergate revival. And as there was the reading of the word requested by the people. And they were standing and moved by it, not apathetic toward it. Father, the revival that broke out, the change that occurred, real worship, real respect and reverence for the word. Having understood it, they mourned, they wept, and they were commanded to be glad because of God's great comfort and strength through his joy. May these elements mark our lives and our lives as a community, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.